0: Welcome to the Moneyball Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Harry Glorickian. This series is all about the data-driven transformation of the healthcare and life sciences landscape. Each episode, we dive deep through one-on-one interviews with leaders in the new cost-conscious, value-based healthcare economy. We look at the challenges and opportunities they're facing and their predictions for the years to come. My guest for today is Dekel Geldman, who is the founding CEO of FDNA. He leads the corporate and business strategy of an innovative digital health company that develops technologies and SaaS platforms used by thousands of clinicians, researchers and lab sites locally in the clinical genomic space. The main mission of the company is to give hope to children with rare diseases and their families. FDNA, which was founded in 2011, uses a combination of computer vision, deep learning, and artificial intelligence to analyze patient symptoms, physical features, and genomic data in combination with a network of thousands of genetics professionals worldwide. Then they drive scientific insights to improve and accelerate diagnostics and therapeutics, impacting the lives of children with rare diseases. Dekel, welcome to the show. Good to have you. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure being here. Deco, we've known each other almost since the the, the day you, you showed up here in Boston dis- deciding whether you would uh, place yourselves here as a company. T- tell me how this whole thing got started, because it's not exactly what you would consider a normal route into the world of uh, diagnostics or using... Uh, uh, AI and machine learning and it was it was quite a while back. I mean it you were guys were at the forefront of this before I think a lot of other people got involved.
1: Absolutely. You know um, when we started we knew almost nothing about healthcare. Uh, we were techies. Uh, the background of this company was actually two founders that were very successful in developing facial recognition software. Uh, that was sold to Facebook um, in uh, early 2010s and um, the drive I think for this company was how do we make impact real social impact with this technology or with our know-how around facial recognition And so by exploring a lot of fields um, healthcare was really um, very compelling because of the impact that you you can you can make um, and we started to, Meet with various uh, specialists and uh, different practices in healthcare. And then, almost by accident, we stumbled across genetics. And we were amazed to learn that back then uh, and for decades, geneticists would look at faces of patients and make a lot of the diagnostic choices um, based on facial patterns that they could identify. And it was just a light bulb moment right then. Then there, uh, we understood that we can really drive change. We can uh, um, disrupt this entire field. We can uh, really drive with a strong computational basis uh, diagnostics, um, and that was really the genesis of of FDA. How we started.
0: Yeah, I remember when you guys we were sitting at, at uh, the where was it Henrietta's table at the right. at the Charles Hotel, and I said, "You guys told me this," and I was like. Oh my God, that's just brilliant! I was, and, and I always thought it would be direct to patient, but you guys decided to go to the clinician and come about it from a sort of a group learning, group educational perspective on how you teach the, the system. Um, tell me a little bit about how, how, it's, how it's designed or, and how it's deployed and how it keeps learning so with ai i think today even more than
1: than ever it is very obvious that it's a data play the more data you have the better the data is the better the technology can become Um, learning algorithms and especially today with deep learning um, uh, models if you have enough data and the data is good you can train a very accurate and advanced technology But the problem and the challenges in this world, especially with rare diseases and genetic disorders, is access to that data. How do you get data? Um, When we started, we started with a lot of collaborations with different researchers around the world, and everyone was very enthusiastic. But every single research site had only very limited uh, quantities of data. And so it got us thinking, you know, what's the best way to start gathering all this data, collecting, curating it. And uh, I, I remember it was one of our uh, developers who said, you know, everyone uses iPhones right now. It's uh, let's develop an app and ask all the geneticists around the world to uh, help us annotate data and collect data. And we said, you know what, let's let's give it a try. And that's how Face to Gene, our current platform, was, was born um, and in hindsight, you know, several years after launching Face to Gene, this was a very successful strategy. Uh, we were able to deliver an application that produces real time value, clinical value to clinicians. And in return, and, and we distributed it for free, by the way, in return, we got a lot of data. And uh, we were able to really advance our development of the technology. Uh, significantly because of this strategy
0: well and it it, it, interestingly enough it, it if I remember our conversations correctly it wasn't just the acquisition of data but it was having experts in the field constantly teaching the system how to be more accurate by their experience
1: that's the old AI um, so when we started really uh, um, supervised learning or having experts teach the system how to think was um, was how we started, how, uh, um, how people thought about AI at the time. In 2014 um, there was a different trend towards deep learning where you really don't teach the system anything. The computer identifies uh, uh, patterns on its own. Uh, it's sort of a black box and that's some of the criticism towards AI today is is that being a black box Um, and that made curating quality data even more important, more significant to that process because we no longer influence the system's um, method of learning. So everything that we influence is how we collect the data, how we ensure the quality of the data, and how we feed the system with data to avoid biases, overfitting, and a lot of the
0: different problems that AI presents uh, today with uh, with deep learning. Can you give me some examples of where this has really changed the timeline, improved the diagnostic odyssey, um, how that's affected, you know, a, a patient or a family, and Where do you see this, uh, you know, where do you see it going from a cost perspective and so forth?
1: Absolutely. So, you know, it's very hard to give uh, macro examples or uh, uh, macro data about time to diagnosis. But um, on a case-by-case basis, we hear all the time from our physicians, from physicians using face-to-gene, how this integrated into their workflow, how it simplified the workflow, how it helped them choose the right diagnostic test, how it helped them uh, identify specific uh, diagnoses for patients that were looking for diagnosis for years. So there are multiple examples, and they've been published elsewhere, both in in, uh, scientific publications and in the media. But I want to tell you um, is what we've learned in our journey, because when we, you know, as as you uh, articulated it in, in the beginning, the mandate uh, that we had going into this um, journey was how can we help physicians identify uh, or diagnose rare diseases in pediatric settings earlier. And as we started to gain traction, as more and more hospitals started to use this as part of their workflow. As more and more researchers started to use this technology to make discoveries, we started hearing back from the laboratories. And this coincides with uh, more um, um, accelerated uh, adoption of next-generation sequencing. The labs are starting to offer exome sequencing and whole genome sequencing to physicians as the primary genetic test. But they came back to us and said, Listen, we get too much information. We generate too much information when we do an exome sequencing. And so if we want clinicians to really adopt this as a test because of the broad coverage, we need to make sure that when we analyze the results, we present to them results that are um, uh, relevant, clinically relevant. And so it's not reasonable to present to a clinician a thousand different variants that may or may not be pathogenic, meaning that they may cause the disease or not. We need to be able to present with the, to them a short list of variants that may be causing a disease. In order to do that, we need to integrate what we call, our jargon uh, calls, phenotypic information. Phenotypic being the uh, information that captures the clinical observation of a patient. Is the patient tall? Does the patient have certain clinical symptoms? Um, and do the face uh, does the face uh, uh, present certain patterns that are linked or associated with these diseases? And guess what? Face to gene um, captured a lot of this phenotypic information as part of the clinical visit, the clinical evaluation. And then it dawned on us that, you know, we really hit something. We started um, to investigate this further, and we've participated in a study called PEDIA uh, that aimed to prioritize exome sequencing results based on facial analysis. The results were staggering. We showed that um, uh, for this uh, cohort of patients, for these group of patients that had monogenic disorders that manifest in facial analysis, we can improve the diagnostic rate from about 40% to almost 100%. And um, at that point, the term next generation phenotyping was born uh, and adopted by us as where we're going with this, with this company. We realized that if we offer a computer-based way, an AI-based method to look at a patient, and correlate that with the patient's genome, we would be able to pinpoint with very high accuracy the, d- the disease-causing variants. And you're talking about cost, you can imagine what this does to this entire industry, or the potential of what this uh, can do to the, the, the entire industry. This can facilitate genome sequencing for the entire population. Uh, and it now makes sense because we have a scalable approach into how to analyze and interpret genome sequencing data for the entire population. And this could uh, have a lot of impact on the future of precision health or precision medicine. Uh, And that is obviously going to have uh, a huge impact on cost. It's very hard to predict right now what that impact is going to be, and obviously if we were, uh, if we are to pursue this path, we need to go well beyond just a facial analysis. We need to look at the holistic phenotype of a patient. So that's uh, that's where we are right now, and 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 that's the uh, the
0: journey ahead of us. So when you were building this, tell me some of the experiences or, or lessons that you learned. You, you know, you you originally said, you know, we were working on algorithms, then we went to a black box machine learning system, and um, you've worked it into the physician's workflow. Uh, g- give me some of your experiences on what it really took to get this to where it is today.
1: I, I think you touched on that uh, last point, I think is the most important one and the most difficult one in uh, in healthcare today is integrating with workflow. Um, it is uh, almost unimaginable to change the workflow of a caregiver. Uh, they're just too darn busy. And um, trying to re-educate them is never going to work. Um, a lot of startups are trying to circumvent the healthcare uh, provider. We don't believe in that future. We don't think that um, providers would disappear. We just think that their role is going to change. And so our strategy was, how do we empower the caregivers? How do we empower physicians? And we do that by giving them pertinent data and, and, and giving them the ability to make uh, um, uh, educated decisions. So we're helping physicians and they're grateful. And the the community of clinical geneticists or medical geneticists really embraced us because we were giving them something that they were missing for years and years. And so we we actually saved them a lot of time. The traction uh, and the responses and the endorsement that we received from the physician was where we were focused, uh, I would say, in the last four years. Really, how do we give... Uh, how do we provide tools that are useful? Um, and um, you know, a lot of this is exploration. We develop something, we test it, uh, we get feedback from the uh, clinicians. Sometimes they love what we do, sometimes they don't. But they're very open and they're very responsive. So for us, that is probably one of the biggest assets that we have as a company, is our relationships with our uh, user base. Um, and, and that really was uh, important in our approach of how do we develop this technology. Everything is driven by what can be useful for our target audience. We learned along the way um, a lot of things and there are a lot of challenges. Uh, workflow was one, right? So how do we, how do we uh, give the physicians the flexibility to use these tools and technologies without changing their workflow? privacy is a huge issue. And uh, physicians are probably the gatekeepers for uh, a lot of the privacy regulation around the world. I'm talking about HIPAA and today GDPR. Um, but patient privacy is very important. And uh, it looks as, as though the, the last gatekeeper is the physician. And they're doing a tremendous job. But we had to step up. And improve our entire process, uh, and go through compliance uh, uh, processes and ISO certification. Uh, today, we're ranked one of the highest-ranking uh, um, scores on AWS as, as uh, uh, in terms of our security and privacy infrastructure. But it took a lot of effort. Uh, another thing that we've learned, I think, is how to be ethical in AI and this is a I think a hot button today Um, specifically in genetics along the years most of the data that was curated was curated for caucasian populations and this created a huge gap in our knowledge our medical knowledge as a society on other ethnicities and um, and so we made it a point to diversify our database so that we can be used not only for a Caucasian population, for, but for ethnicities in Africa and Latin America and Asia Pacific. And this made a huge difference, by the way. Not only uh, did it made us uh, um, grow our presence, and today we're um, being used in over 130 countries around the world, but it actually improved our AI. And this is a very interesting um, uh, thing that I've learned along the years. When you train the system to look at different ethnicities, the morphology, the way the face looks can be influenced by a variety of of, uh, influencers. Uh, The ethnicity, obviously, uh, uh, environment can change uh, how your face looks. Not as much with pediatric population, but still. Uh, And your genetics influence how your face looks like. So you have to discount some of these um, uh, factors. And by training the system on a very diverse ethnic population, you're basically taking off the table the differences that relate to ethnic uh, origin. And you focus on the pathogenic morphology. Only the morphology, only these patterns that are caused by those genetic disorders. So um, just to count a few things that we've learned along the way.
0: How big of a data set do you need to, or where are you guys now compared to where, you know, it was just a few years ago? I, I imagine that acquiring this data because of the app is much easier. The amount of data that you're able to get in is significantly higher than going out there and trying to do this yourself or coming up with a a uh, specific piece of instrumentation necessarily to do this. Um, and then it was just recently that you guys started incorporating the genomics part of it. Or the announcement was not that long ago. Um, but how do you see that working into the success of the company? We, we've, we always try to come up with some special piece of technology whereas i feel like the tech world is moving so fast forward and what it's bringing is is pretty damn good quality and it keeps improving thinking you know you know the iwatch and the detail you can get off of an iphone camera and so forth so how do you see that playing a role in what you guys are doing so
1: um You know, again, one of the challenges uh, um, at at the outset of the company was dealing with very small uh, amounts of data. Our target um, uh, number of diseases, just with the facial analysis technology, is uh, somewhere between 2,500 and 4,000. And for each of these diseases, sometimes there are only five reported cases in the history of of, uh, publications. So we're working with extremely small sets of data. Uh, For us, that was a technology challenge that we've uh, addressed through some uh, uh, methods like translational learning, where we learn from bigger data sets and then we take that back to a smaller data set uh, and apply what we've learned. But uh, generally speaking, um, we work with very, very small data sets across or, or for each specific indication face gene was very successful in, 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 in gathering more and more information. To date, um, we have more than 100, uh, 120,000 patients that were processed and analyzed through face 2 Obviously, that enriches our database. The pace uh, of uploading more and more patients into the system is increasing um, every month. And so I wouldn't be surprised if in um, two to three years uh, we will actually reach uh, uh, around a million patients processed through this uh, um, system. So that really enhances our ability not only to improve um, the AI around identification of specific phenotypes, but it also broadens the, the coverage so we can see more and more diseases. And you were talking a little bit about other sensors like the iWatch. Um, Part of our next generation phenotyping um, approach is indeed to enhance our collection from uh, beyond just the facial data into other phenotypic data. So vital signs that are collected through uh, wearables are part of that video processing, even voice processing. So the voice can be uh, a very strong indication for certain diseases. Um, Obviously uh, medical device information that is collected through existing medical devices uh, and and medical imaging. All this information should be funneled into a central location that uh, will be able to uh, improve our insights. Now there are a lot of companies out there that are doing similar um, uh, or have similar efforts. Our unique approach is that we take all this information and the sole purpose of that is to then look at the genome and try to identify the disease-causing variants. We're not developing radiology uh, decision support tools. We're not developing uh, agent uh, diagnostic devices. Uh, our sole purpose is to look at this information and say how can from this information we would be able to infer uh insights from the person's genome
0: so you you had started this with you know we are a bunch of technology guys that sort of stumbled into the world of healthcare what what is what are the experiences you can share as you know what type of people do you need on the back end Doing the coding, doing the work, but then integrating that with, say people who might be knowledgeable in the disease state and and sort of making that whole thing happen. And you and you're not all in one place. You're you have different sites, and so that that whole process is there. A, a, a lessons you can share or the magic you can share to help bridge that gap. Because I always feel that technologists can code, but You need somebody that understands that health dynamic, that disease state, that workflow, and then the two have to somehow almost meld into one person to be able to produce something that is usable. I wish I had a formula.
1: Um, it's, um, It's not very easy to quantify what you need in order to succeed. I would say that... Generally, and this is something that I truly believe in, disruption never comes from within an industry. It takes an outsider to look at uh, something and try to um, solve a problem that exists for many years. At the same time, without the relationships that we've um, uh, created over the years and without the involvement of medical geneticists in our company... We would have never um, understood the the breadth and the depth of the problems that we're trying to solve. So, for us, the the uh, AI approach was very straightforward. But going into diving into the details, it started to become extremely complex in terms of uh, how syst- uh, uh, syndromes are categorized, uh, how genetics works, and 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 that's information that we. We simply didn't have. But as we dove deeper and deeper, with the support of many experts um, in the uh, genetics field, and we have a, an extremely broad and involved uh, scientific advisory board. If you take a look at our website, it's probably about 30 to 40 people that are involved. We don't pay them, they're, they're volunteering because they really believe in the future. That this technology holds without their involvement we would have never succeeded to to put technology uh, uh, to solve a problem and um, without naming names you know there are other companies out there that are very um, sophisticated and uh, considered uh, um, very prominent in the machine learning world um, i think their approach to involving the industry is is wrong. Um, taking just one or two sites to train a system or to um, to be the domain expert is is not the right approach. You have to broaden the scope as much as possible, and that's what we've done. We've we've been working with almost everyone in this field.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, I think technology lends itself to or the technologies these days lend themselves to, um, I don't want to say crowdsourcing, but you, you can get a much larger set of input if you're managing this correctly. Um, when you're hiring people or when you're looking at certain skill sets to bring on board, how, how do you think about that? Where, where, where might be some of the places that you'd look to find these, these individuals aren't falling off trees and if you were in the Bay Area you'd be fighting tooth and nail for you know the person that hasn't even graduated yet so how how are you uh, taking on the right people and and finding the right skill sets so you know um, especially
1: in the algorithmic development world um, talent is extremely expensive whether it's in the Bay Area whether it's in uh, New England or whether it's in uh, Israel. Um, these people are extremely uh, expensive. The competition over recruitment is fierce and we're competing with some, you know, 800 pound gorillas in the market, Amazon, Facebook, Google, etc. The one thing that we have in our company that I've rarely seen in other companies, is purpose. And so this is a highly marketable trait for a company when you're recruiting. Getting people on board that believe in the purpose of the company, believe that they can make an impact, I think is such a powerful thing to have as a company. Um, and coincidentally, that, that's the kind of trait that I'm looking for when I hire uh, people. So experience is important and dedication, diligence, intelligence, all these traits are very important. The number one trait for me though is passion. Because I truly believe that if you're passionate about what you do and if you enjoy what you do and if you believe in what you do, then you're going to uh, put you know, more from yourself into the company, you're going to be more productive, you're going to care. Um, and so that is probably the number one trait that I'm looking for when I'm hiring people. And that doesn't have to do with geography or with uh, where you went to school. It's just, you know, um, it's what you care about. Um, and so it's, uh, it's, it's not that rare to find page, uh, um, um, employees uh, and talent that connect to the mandate of the company that believe in our vision Um, and recruitment has never been a huge issue for us.
0: So where do you see the company going next from a technology evolution perspective, from a clinical impact perspective and then you know sort of your vision beyond that but sort of those two things I think incorporation of technology these days is almost like a race where you're constantly trying to keep up with the next chipset that's incorporated, the next software improvement that's coming um, faster than I've ever seen it in any other time. Um, and then clinically, the, the where do you see that going?
1: So I, I think we have to be modest in um, our perspective on, on the impact that we can make. And we need to be cognizant of um, macro- uh, uh, economic uh, changes in healthcare that um, we have very little influence on. Um, so we need to look from the sidelines and and, and and try to evaluate where this field is going. Um, we are strong believers that um, we are entering into an era of precision health. Uh, we're strong believers that the main driver for that is genomics. Um, We obviously believe that AI is um, a driver for these huge data sets and what we can do with them. And so within or from that um, insight, we believe that if we focus, but really focus very hard on developing the best technology, that regardless of time, I know know that's a huge issue for startups, right? But regardless of time, whether it takes one year, two years, or five years, we need to focus on making this technology a standard of care alongside genomics. And doing that uh, for us means focusing on value, showing value, demonstrating value, showing how we can improve the benefits for all the stakeholders involved in our little space, which are physicians, researchers, labs, obviously patients, um, and then life science
0: companies. If I read that correctly, you're looking beyond the rare disease space. I think the
1: immediate value of what we're doing right now applies to the rare disease space. But the future implies that um, genomics is gonna play a key role and uh, risk assessment for more complex and also more common diseases. Um, As we start rooting ourselves into the genomics field, uh, yes, we see ourselves uh, tagging along to that journey and going beyond rare diseases in the future into um, almost all diseases. Uh, But there's a huge gap that genomics needs to, to catch up to. Uh, to apply to to uh, other diseases. Today I think you know mostly genomics is applied to um, rare diseases, oncology, and um, that's pretty much where most of the genomics is focused right now.
0: Yeah I've always thought about some of the stuff that you guys are doing and saying well what if we just started applying that to a broader population. I you know we call it a, a rare disease when we it seems to manifest itself in what, what might be categorized as an issue or a problem or a um, how it hinders someone from, you know, the life that they want to lead, et cetera. But I I I wanna say that, that there's the, the deviation off that is you know, there there's probably people that you call normal that probably have some of these traits that we're just they're subtle, so you don't pick up on them. So it, I, I always wonder the application of tech, this technology to the broader uh, population.
1: I would argue that naming rare diseases rare diseases is a huge disservice to, to these type of diseases. Uh, if you think about this, if you think about the future of precision healthcare, care, um, every disease is rare because every disease is going to be Categorized as a unique subset of interactions between different biological systems and mechanisms. And so I think that in 20 years, the term rare disease is going to be uh, obsolete because we will look at every single disease as a unique set of genotype, phenotype, and other. Uh, um biological um, input or uh, um, feeds into a computerized system that's going to analyze everything so yes today um, we focus on rare diseases um, we focus on the genomic side and uh but that's I, I think that's going to change along the years we we definitely look at at FDna on a very long term scale um, we've always, been able to do that with the support of our investors and uh, the founders and even our employees, and I think that this is the right way to look um, at a startup company.
0: Anything I haven't asked you, words of wisdom, you know, experiences that you want to share before we, we sign off?
1: No, well, I think uh, you've done a great job. Thank you. <laughs> uh, it was uh, it's it's always a pleasure to uh, to talk to you, Harry, and and. Uh, hear your uh, insights on the world of healthcare and and how that's developing um i think we have the privilege to be operating in a very unique era and uh hopefully um we're gonna be uh we're gonna benefit from good timing and and uh we're gonna seize the opportunity as a company um, but even more important than that, I, I really hope that the effort that we're doing with developing this technology is going to create a huge impact on patients.
0: Yeah, I I, I, I do believe, in it's interesting, um, you know, I'm not sure that the algorithms are the secret sauce or the machine learning back end or so forth. I, I feel like some of that is always going to be able to be reproduced by someone else. But the data set, I believe, is going to have tremendous value and the impact that it has going forward. So on that note, I want to thank you very much for joining today and um, look forward to continued uh, dialogue and updates in the future. Thank you very much, Harry. Take care. And that's it for this episode. Join me for the next episode where I speak to John Glasser, who is the Senior Vice President of Population Health at Cerner. We dig into how the business model in healthcare is changing and how AI and EMR systems will work together in the future. If you enjoyed Moneyball Medicine, please head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It is greatly appreciated. Hope you join us next time. Until then, farewell.